and welcome to the BU Body Empowerment Unified Podcast. I'm Emily, the President. And I'm Amber, the Vice President. And we represent the Body Image Eating Disorder Awareness Club, also known as BDAC. Started by high school students and based in Los Angeles, California, this podcast aims to tell body image stories, spread positivity and kindness, share tips and tricks for self-care, and raise awareness about eating disorders and mental health. We hope that this podcast can be your safe space and that you can resonate with the stories told and join us in our goal to achieve a more diverse and body positive future. In today's episode, we will be discussing the importance of destigmatizing mental health, promoting mental health awareness, and talk therapy with guest speaker Priscilla Adjman, the founder and creator of the mental health resource platform Sadi Baddies. In this episode, we discuss topics concerning self-harm and depression. Listening discretion is advised. According to the American Psychological Association, 30% of patients were concerned about other individuals finding out if they sought after mental health treatment, and 20% said the stigma is a quote-unquote very important reason not to seek help from a mental health professional. Mental health is stigmatized in many different ways and has a variety of names including public stigma, self-stigma, and institutional stigma. Reference from the American Psychiatric Association, public stigma involves the negative or discriminatory attitudes that others have about mental illnesses. Self-stigma refers to the negative attitudes, including internalized shame that people with mental illnesses have about their own condition. And finally, Institutional stigma refers to an organization's policies or culture of negative attitudes and beliefs concerning mental illnesses. Today's guest speaker is Priscilla Adjaman. Priscilla Adjaman is pretty transparent about her experience with depression and anxiety in her early 20s. She was a perfectionist, a people pleaser, and someone who didn't have a strong sense of self just yet. At some point, Priscilla was mentally exhausted from having panic attacks, depressive episodes, and keeping all her feelings inside. So, in the first semester of graduate school at Mount Sinai, where Priscilla received her Master's of Public Health degree two years later, she finally decided to seek out the mental health resources available to her in the form of talk therapy. It has changed her life for the better, and she is proud to say that she has developed healthier coping skills and still utilizes therapy four years later today. This inspired Priscilla to create Sadi Baddies, which was created in March of 2019. Sadi Baddies is a virtual sanctuary to provide community, resources, and dialogue surrounding mental health awareness. Their goal is to remove the stigma surrounding mental illnesses and mental health in order to initiate collective healing for Black bodies, Indigenous bodies, Latinx bodies, Asian bodies, and multiracial bodies. Sadi Bodies does this by selecting and curating research-based topics and content focusing on mental and emotional health, social justice, and highlighting the lived experiences of people of color. Additionally, 
They extend their network into all social media channels and collaborate regularly with like-spirited brands and organizations as well. Hi, Priscilla. Thank you so much for coming to our show today. We're so excited to interview you. I'm going to hand the mic off to Sherry to ask the first question. What caused you to be a perfectionist and a people pleaser? So that's a great question. Um, I'll be honest with you. Um, you know, I am first-generation American. Um, so my family is from West Africa, Ghana specifically. And it was a kind of ingrained in me, not, not from my parents per se. It's more so the assimilation of being American, but having African parents, right? So that's like a cultural disconnect, I would say, that I experienced growing up. So in order for me to fit in with, you know, kids in my class that were American and, you know, just had parents that um, lived here their whole lives and generations before them had lived there their whole lives, I felt this level of pressure to fit in. And I I found it hard because... For me, I really tried my best to like excel in all areas, but specifically school was one area that I was like, I know I can excel here, right? Because I did really well with like my courses. I was a straight A student, honor roll, like that whole thing. So I was very much so a high achieving student. And um, I saw what admiration I got, you know, um, from having good grades and from being smart and intelligent and, and outperforming students in my class. Like, you know, like I saw how happy it made my parents. So it was more so like, not necessarily my parents putting pressure on me. Like you have to get this A. It was more like, I have to get this A to make them happy, if that makes sense. Um, so that's where that perfectionism started. And then also I think what I now appreciate is like my my attention to detail which is my creativity i think it was misled um into perfectionism right so like now i know i'm like oh i'm just very detail oriented and i'm very creative and i'm an artistic person like you know like i think that's why we love people who are artists and musicians because they they pay attention to everything right but then you also want to have a balance of not paying attention to every single thing at the same time. So um, that perfectionism definitely was most prevalent um, in college. And that's when I really started struggling with my performance academically because I was not the only smartest kid in the class anymore. You know, like when you're choosing a major like myself, I chose biology was my major. And if anyone comes from a background or just knows like anyone who was in the STEM field, it's a very competitive major to be in and a very competitive field to be in because, you know, you're competing technically against like the the, the smartest kids in, in each class. Like, you know, like you're competing against valedictorians and class presidents and all these, you know, really accomplished kids. And you're, then you start realizing like, oh, I'm not the only kid that's like, was really smart, you know? So a lot of imposter syndrome settled in in college. And then um, it wasn't until grad school that I was like, okay, I want to get help with this, you know? But um, yeah, I would say like people pleasing was my way of showing people I cared about them. And I think it manifested most often in my family dynamic and then specifically definitely within my friendships too. Like I 
was always the friend that was going above and beyond like it's your birthday i got you like i'm gonna do a whole thing for you like and then you know not realizing like that that wasn't always reciprocated to me you know what i mean and so i realized later down the line like oh well maybe some of this is because i'm not really in tune with myself and i don't really understand what it means to love myself just yet that's the kind of like spiritual self of health journey that I went on basically five years ago. Wow, um, that, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that was a mouthful. <laughs> no, but it was it was, was great and it was um, very inspiring to hear how you went through all that stress and in like relation to that, um, what was and like what is your view on body image and its connect mental health, especially during that time in college and growing up. That's a great question. So body image was, to be honest, I, I don't think I really struggled with my body image up until I started dating, I would say. That's when I started becoming a little more insecure because, you know, when you are intimate with people and partners, like, you are more vulnerable in so many ways. And I think for me, that was, like, kind of my turning point of, like, oh, wait, am I thick enough you know am I curvy enough or is my like stomach flat enough or whatnot and first of all like no offense but men literally don't even deserve all of that <laughs> like all of that like stress and worry like in retrospect I'm like honestly who gives a damn like like just as a full like you know grown adult I'm just like wow I really was stressing over nothing you know and like at the end of the day I ended up with a partner who literally loves every single part of me so does it it doesn't even matter anymore you know but at the time when I was like dating and I was single I was very insecure about my my body I, I think I was just like wouldn't give myself a break and so in ties to mental health yeah it, it messes up like your self-esteem it makes you feel like you're supposed to be a certain way and you're not it's literally your body so it should look like your body you know not anyone else's I'm really happy that, you know, you found someone that doesn't, like, make you feel insecure in the way you look. I think that's uh, really great. Um, Thank you. And so what was the turning point where you decided to put your foot down and be like, um, I'm going to go to therapy? I was not experiencing suicidal thoughts. And I was like, well, it can't be that bad. You know what I mean? I can't really have it. I can't have any mental issues if I am not thinking about hurting myself or ending my life. So how bad could it be? You know, like I came from a two parent household. I lived in the suburbs growing up. I went to college, you know, I don't have any crazy stories. Like, you know, I was pretty, I was okay. You know what I'm saying? Um, and that's not to say my life or my childhood was perfect. There was obviously moments that were not perfect, but for the most part, I was like, I shouldn't be complaining essentially. It really wasn't until grad school, graduate school, I started in 2017. And um, I went to Mount Sinai to get my master's in public health. And I was dealing with a lot at the time. I was had just moved back to New York City after living with my parents for like a year and some change. And like that was essentially my gap year. So like me coming back to New York City, because um, my undergrad was in New York City too, so um, I was used to living in New York. But living in New York as like like a college student versus like an adult is just so different because you really like you get 
you really get an understanding of like what it's like to really be on your own and like pay rent and have bills and stuff where in college it, that wasn't the case you know so I was like re-adulting all over again so that was really uh, it was a lot for me and then I was also single and dating and you know living with new roommates and like I was in school I was trying to figure out my life and I just was like kind of started spiraling like I just became really really depressed and like it was just like one of those weeks that like I will never forget and it was actually longer than a week now I think about it it, it went on for some time it's probably going on for almost a month but specifically there was this week where I was I broke down like I literally broke down I was on the train and then I was on the bus and I was crying on the bus like literally sobbing on the bus and I was like so embarrassed that I was crying in public and I was like what you know like what am I doing with my life like I just I didn't know what the hell was going on and then I went home and I just like kept crying I literally was like on the floor crying and sobbing my heart out it was just this overwhelming feeling of loneliness like I had never felt that lonely in my entire life and I just couldn't deal with it um I wasn't eating I was like literally didn't leave my room my friends were texting me I was not responding to texts which is not like me and I was like something is wrong something is wrong with me like I don't know what it is but it's there's something off and I don't like it and I remember writing in my journal and I, I've been journaling since I was literally like seven eight years old so I've collected over like 30 notebooks <laughs> of like my thoughts and stuff, which is, it's just so funny to like read like what you, what your biggest problems were at age like 15 versus like 25 is just, it's hilarious. But anyway, I'm writing in my journal a lot. I just kind of hit rock bottom, like emotionally and mentally, you know? And I remember seeing something about therapy being available at my school and at my graduate school. And I was like, you know, I'm not too sure about this, but like, maybe this could be a thing to see if it helps. And it did. And I made an appointment and I remember being like really embarrassed going to like the appointment and just like not wanting anyone to see me and being very much so just like embarrassed, you know, it's just like, oh no, you know, I don't want this to be my story. Like, I don't want this to be, you know, like, okay, like this is my this is my thing, like, Priscilla is depressed. You know what I mean? I didn't want that to be my thing. I was so worried. That's stigma. That's literally what stigma is, you know? Worrying about what other people think when you're going through shit. That's stigma. So, yeah, that was when I decided to go to therapy. It was four years ago. And now I realize that that was the best decision I've ever made because without it, I would have never started Saudi Baddies. Not have developed this, the tools that I have now to heal myself. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was going to say that I find it really cool that you were able to identify that there was something wrong with you. Because I know a lot of people who do struggle with mental illnesses don't understand and they don't know how to reach out for the help that's right. provided for them. So I yeah. think that's really cool. Thank Just you. Thank you. And, you know, it took a lot. It took definitely a lot for me to to admit it. And I think the minute I admitted it to myself, I was like, you know what? I want to do something about this because I just know that I don't feel like myself. Like I feel like a shadow of myself, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah. 
so for the next question, um, we were wondering, why do you think people of color are less inclined to seek emotional therapy slash mental health therapy in general? It's mm. a great question. So I think um, really there's so many layers to it. I think that we are less inclined because it is less available to us, period. Like, let's start there. It's literally less available to us for Black people, for Latinx people, for Indigenous people, for Asian people. It is less available to us. There are less Black, Latino, Latina indigenous Asian therapists than there are white, you know, like let's just literally start there. And then if you tie in the medical, medical trauma and historical and medical racism that that black people have faced, I mean, it's literally, it's not, it's not a rocket science, like why we're so left out of this resource that is so important to us. You know what I mean? Again, because we've had to use placeholders of of therapy. And I think one of the placeholders that we've used is church. And, you know, I would say when I'm, when I say church, I'm talking about specifically Christian churches. There is something that is very interesting about how religion is used as a placeholder for therapy. I think the, the irony is that it's kind of beautiful that we've did something, you know, to fill in the gaps however that is not appropriate do you know what i'm saying it's like it's like using a doorstep like using something as a doorstep a door holder if you're like holding trying to hold you're not going to use a crystal bowl right it's going to break eventually it's not appropriate to hold something that heavy it's the same with church church is supposed to be a religious space where people connect and find community etc but it is not therapy it is literally not therapy. Your pastor is, is unless they are, are like a, a therapist, but even then there's a separation of like a spiritual leader and a therapist, right? So because black people, um, and we've used gospel music, we use all forms of, you know, of, of religious expression as a placeholder of therapy. So there, there's actually so much stigma that comes specifically from the church. And I know this firsthand because I grew up in church. <laughs> um, and although I am not someone who actively goes to church anymore, I know that that was one of the first places I saw people cry, like grown men crying, you know, and, and women crying and, and people being emotional. That was the first place I've ever seen that. And that's because church is a sanctuary and it's it's a safe space. And that's one of the, that's one of the reasons I know I use the word sanctuary to describe Saudi baddies because I know it's feels like and I, that's what I want Saudi baddies to feel like not necessarily saying I'm replacing church with Saudi baddies but what I understand as a safe space is what I hope Saudi baddies is too okay, on the topic of Saudi baddies uh that you were talking about res- er, earlier um what pushed you to start Saudi baddies and could you tell us more about this organization sure um so it was two years, yeah, two years ago. Wow, time flies. Um, yeah, two years ago. I, uh, so I had just graduated from my master's program. And I was like, okay, great. I got my master's. That's awesome. But like, what next? You know, 
And this is one lesson I had to learn is like not to rush because when I was about to graduate, I was like, okay, now I need to find a job now because I'm going to need something to do immediately. I'm going to need to figure out how to pay my bills and my rent right after grad school, you know, because I wasn't working while I was in grad school. Well, I was like babysitting, but I wasn't like working full time. So, and I was like tutoring also um, on campus, whatever. I was just like, all right, I need to make money. I need to find a real job, like my first like salary job, right? And I settled. I settled for the first offer that I got. I settled for a role that I knew was not aligned with what I wanted to do. Even if I, I wasn't 100% clear on it, I was just like, well, this, this will be fine. Like, I'll figure it out, you know? I just need to have a job. I settled for a job that I was not happy with. And I'm, I'm say, I say happy like subjectively because to be honest with you, I think in America, it's just, it is very difficult to find a job you truly love. And I think that's why so many people end up being entrepreneurs and like doing their own businesses or freelancers or whatever, because it just, there's, there's so much, but you cannot put all of our skills in a box most of the time. And even if we do, it's like being adequately paid for your, for your labor and your in America specifically. So anyway, I settled for a job. And I slowly realized I was very miserable there. And when I mean miserable, I mean, like, I would come home and, like, cry. And I would, like, cry during my bathroom breaks or, like, my lunch break. And I would, like, try to, like, just dissociate as much as I could when I left work. Because I was just like, wow, this is not for me. But, like, I have to do this. You know what I mean? Like, I literally have to pay my rent. Like, I don't have any other choice. So from that misery i was like i need to do something like when i come home all i really do is watch netflix and you know i did have healthy habits i would say like um you know i would go to the gym and like i wasn't into meditation just yet but like i was you know i just i was doing things to fill my time but it wasn't intentional if that makes sense so I realized, I was like, you know what? I want to do something that makes me feel good. That has nothing to do with work. And so I was like, all right, I really want to do something. Like, I, I feel like I, I'm very, I know a lot about mental health. And I can maybe answer this in a different question. But essentially, I got really interested in mental health. And I always have been, but like specifically mental mental illnesses and things like that because a year before my internship was to go to Texas and go to a detention center um, voluntarily and basically do a cross-sectional study to show how debilitating being child separation with like mothers and children being separated at the border and being a detention center is how detrimental that is for children's health. And that was in an effort to support the grassroots organization that we worked with, um, me and my colleague at the time. We were working with them to basically help build this case so like we could help the legislation to get this, these kids out of detention centers, essentially, right? So that's where that, that like drive for like mental health and understanding what mental health was because I saw it at its worst, like literally detained women and children that were crossing the border for asylum and like the type of abuse that they faced prior and throughout their time being there was like, okay, mental health 
see not just something that is here in the States, it's everywhere. You know what I mean? And that was really one of my deciding factors. But I was like, all right, I want to talk about this in a way that people will get it. Because it's not enough to just read Psychology Today. And honestly, I love Psychology Today. It's a great website. They have so many resources. But, you know, people need to be able to read this on the go. Like when they're on the train or if they're like at the gym and they have like a minute in between sets, like they can read something about mental health. You know, like that's how I wanted to design it. And so also I love Tumblr. I was like very heavy on Tumblr when I was um, in high school and college. And I was like, I love Tumblr. I love like how visually, like aesthetically pleasing it is. And then I was like, okay, what if I just start a page and call it Saddy Baddies? Because you know what? I know I'm a baddie, but I'm also sad. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm literally crying in the bathroom, like at work, wiping my tears. And then like, that is really where Saddy Baddies came from. Like that whole like understanding of like, guess what? You can look... And like, you can look like someone who never struggles with mental health. And by that, I mean, stereotypically, what we understand is someone that struggles with mental health. Like what the media shows is someone who's having like a mental breakdown and this and that. And, you know, and they never really show like black women having mental breakdowns or anything like that. And I'm like, I know so many black women who have come to this page and they're like, thank you for seeing me. You know, like people don't believe me when I say I have anxiety or I have bipolar disorder or that I have major depression or that I have borderline personality, borderline personality disorder, or, you know, the people don't believe it because they see you and they're like, Oh, you're good. Like, you're fine. You know what I mean? Like you're you have a great outfit on, you look great. You're fine. Like, no, that's because mental health is not external. You know what I mean? It's not just an external thing. So I wanted to have a safe space. I was like, I'm tired of not being able to talk about this openly. And like, I'm tired of pretending like my life is perfect on Instagram and like not really sharing my personality. And like, I feel like through Sadie Baddies, I've really been able to like express myself. And I've just been way more open about like how I feel and, you know, not oversharing, but also just being more open and being more comfortable, like with my voice and like my digital voice, I guess you can say. So, yeah. That's, yeah, that's kind of how I started it. I mean, I feel like every time I have that question, I like answer it differently, but this is probably the most authentic <laughs> that I've answered it, so. Yeah, I love how you came up with the name. <laughs> it's so too. amazing. I didn't know, I didn't know that Sadie Vaddies, I didn't know sad, Sadie was for sad, and then uh, this, I thought that was really funny. Yeah, yeah it's like, and also in, in college, my nickname, for some reason, my roommate's, at the time, I had like I lived with seven girls at one time in college. Like my junior year of college, it was freaking nuts, but it was great, great time. Um, but they like gave me my nickname was like Batty, like Batty P. Like they just like read <laughs> and started calling me that one day, and I was like, okay, like I'll take it. Yeah, and, yeah that, it stuck, and I was like, wait a minute, I'm a baddie, but I'm also sad as hell. <laughs> that's so I'm not the only one. I was like, I know I'm not the only one. So yeah, there. There's so many sadie baddies, I think, out in the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I think it's amazing that you made this online resource for people to um, reach out to. So how can uh, people who don't have access to technology um, receive mental health resources? Mm, okay, 
So from my understanding, like that, that's difficult, right? Because everything is virtual, everything is digital and we're living in a virtual age right now, obviously because of pandemic, like that just was amplified times 10, right? But I think that's what community is about. You know, that's what community is about. That's what the, I think I was actually just saying this today when I was at work, like I work in Harlem and I've always worked in Harlem. I went to school in Harlem, like for grad school. My, my first job was, you know, like I've just, I've been in Harlem for years and like, I really understand the neighborhood now. Um, and my partner's also from Harlem. And I, I think that one thing about Harlem that I love is that it is extremely close knit in terms of community. Like you'll see people walk down the street and randomly like give each other a hug and be like, Oh, Hey, like I saw you like whatever, like run into the grocery store. And like, I don't know, there's just something about Harlem specifically. Like I, there's like a Caribbean spot near my job and I go there for lunch often. And like the chef was like, Oh, I'm going to see you for lunch later. Like, you're going to come, like, pick up your lunch. I'm like, yeah, yeah, Do you have, like, the fried fish? Like, whatever. Like, it's just a very, like, neighborly, like, community-based, like, neighborhood, you know? And I think one thing about that is, like, things travel through word of mouth quickly. So community is so important because it, it fills in the gaps where our government fails, always, literally. So... And that, that's on a that's on a small scale and it's on a larger scale. So I think when it comes to getting information, it's so important to be connected to a community, like a real life community, because those are the people that volunteer their time, their energy, their resources to make sure that everyone's taken care of, literally. And I know Brooklyn is the same way, but like specifically Harlem is just very, very community based and very closely knit. Like, I feel like everybody knows everybody, you know? And it's really beautiful because I know if, like, I, I'm working with a patient or a client, because I do work in healthcare, um, but yeah, if I'm working with, like, a patient or a client and they don't have a cell phone, I can write it down for them or I can give them, like, a piece of paper and be like, go to this, like, off of 125th and Lennox, like, on the corner, across from Sylvia's. Like, don't know where it is because that's just, like, how the community works. You know what I'm saying? So I think when it comes to passing information, especially about mental health resources, making it as accessible as possible and using community as your mobility, you know, like literally utilizing the fact that like someone is going to know someone is going to know someone who can help, you know, and that's really, I think that's a great question because there are a lot of people who are not surprisingly like, Yes, the majority of Americans have a cell phone and know how to use it and are on social media, but there is a good percentage of Americans who do not operate with technology at all, whether it's for cultural reasons or socioeconomic reasons or whatever, you know? Okay, wow. Your community in Harlem, like, sounds really nice. <laughs> um, and I, I love it. Um, yeah, and I definitely believe that um, others can find some relation between your uh, experiences and maybe find some guidance through that. Um, so what do you, what would you say to the people who believe that therapy is for the weak? Mm. I would want to give them a hug because that's so far from the truth. Like therapy is such a beautiful resource and it's something that I really wish that every single person would have access to because 
whether you are aware of what you need from therapy or not, trust me, like by your like second or third session, you'll know why you're there. And the only reason why someone would say it's for the week is if is this, it's because they are stigmatizing it. So talking about your feelings is looked at as something that's feminine. And if you're looking at things from a binary standpoint, like that's why we honestly need to destroy the gender binary because there is like so much that's in between, you know, there's so much, that's so much depth, so much humanity. It's just so much, like there's so much dynamic parts of our human experience that are in between the binary, you know, that's why I feel like it's so important, like for people who are non-binary to like really celebrate that. Cause that's beautiful. Like to say like, you know what, I'm actually, I don't identify with like this, these two selections that society has given me. Like I am choosing to be my own person and I'm choosing to identify with what I want to, not specifically just like what was predestined for me. Like, I think that's so beautiful. And I think that because talking and emotions is looked as something that's feminine, I think because we live in a patriarchal society, right? In a misogynistic society, it's looked down on, you know? And it's like, oh, well, you shouldn't need therapy. And that's why men specifically are more likely to commit suicide, you know? Because there is so much stigma, especially around men's mental health. I still feel like there is so much scarcity when it comes to men's wellness spaces and like, you know, like men's, mental health spaces i get questions and dms all the time asking me if i know of any and i'm like i'm sorry like i'll send you what i know there's really not that many that i know of and i know it's because of the stigma so moving away from like thinking that we're human like you came out of this world crying what makes you think crying is natural i love crying i cry like twice a week (laughs) at minimum like I think crying is just so healthy and it's such a like I don't know I just feel like I just really feel like the more in touch you are with your emotions the more sympathy and empathy that you have for other human beings like definitely so I think therapy is just one of those places and resources that if it is made available to everyone which you know in my lifetime I would love to see that happen you know um i think so many people would benefit from it i think the world would be a better place for sure yeah definitely i someone told me once that crying helps to relieve stress as well i don't know oh yeah but i'm pretty sure that it helps a lot yeah it's a great stress reliever and it just helps you to feel like when you cry like that's your that's your like heart literally telling you like okay it's time to release like i've been holding a lot like it's i need to let this down you know like that's how i think of crying like i think it's like honoring your feelings mm-hmm. and it, maybe it's not crying maybe it's yelling maybe it's whatever like your emotional outlet is like just doing it and doing it regularly will really help you to feel me like more level-headed you know because then it's like you can actually let those emotions out instead of just pushing them in, pushing them in, like letting, like actually giving it room to breathe, not stifling your emotions. Yeah, repression's kind of dangerous, like repressing all those feelings. Yeah, for sure, for sure. 
question is, what is your definition of beauty? That's a great question. Um, I think beauty is, is one of those words that is like so complex, but at the same time, very simple, you know, and like happiness, I think. Um, beauty to me means being your most authentic self, you know, like, there, there will be times where, like, I, like, don't have any makeup on, and I'm just, like, you know, chilling in a big t-shirt, and, like, my partner's, like, you're so beautiful, like, and I'm, like, what? <laughs> and I'm just, like, looking at him, like, what are you talking about? He's, like, you're so beautiful right now. I'm, like, what? You know, and I, and then I understand, like, what he's saying is that, like, you're just, you're raw, like, right now, like, you're in your rawest form. You're in your most, like, authentic form. And, you know, I think that beauty thing that you have to understand is very personal to you as well, right? Because you could have external beauty, but inside maybe that you got to deal with that is like preventing you from being the person that you want to be and the person that you need to be for yourself and for other people, right? So I feel like I personally think that the more work that you do internally, literally it just, it glows, like it comes out of you. And so if you know, I don't know if you've ever met someone who just like glows or just like has this like, like radiance about them. And I'm like, they're doing something internally. Like you can tell that that person is taking care of their soul, not just their face, not their skin, not their body, whatever. Like, like literally you can tell when someone is taking care of their soul. And I think that's beautiful. And that's why I think I work so hard to make sure I'm at peace with myself and I'm at ease with myself every day so that I can output more beauty in the world. Because we we can see how dark and ugly and scary and awful and traumatic this world can be and is a lot of times, you know? And I think the more that we look at beauty as something that is in, is personal, but also collective, meaning that we're all doing our part together. Like, I think that's 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 why we're still here on this earth, literally. You know, like that's why people go on hikes and and go travel and go to the mountains and have flowers and paint and make music is because that's beautiful like that's literally that's the art of life and figuring out what it is every day that you can do to embody that and to practice that whether it's big or small it's 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 beautiful literally you know that's what beauty is to me This episode was brought to you by the Biotech Club of TCHS and was produced and edited by Emily Kwok. We'd like to thank our guest speaker, Priscilla Adjuman, for speaking with us in this interview. We hope you enjoy this special episode and can't wait for you to listen to more. Don't forget to follow us at TCHS Biotech, that's B-I-E-D-A-C on Instagram, where you can view our club activities, posts, and contact information. If you would like to be featured in a future episode, you can contact us at B-I-E-D-A-C-L-U-B at gmail.com. We are your hosts, Sherry Uhara and Emily Kwok.
Thanks for listening and don't forget to be you.